When the great font wars erupt, what's the best way to make sure you wipe out the most typographers all at once? By using an aerial attack, of course. Listening to Real Time Overview for August 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. In case you missed it, this past Monday was episode 16 of the Drunken UX podcast, where we were joined by Jeff Stevens to talk about getting started in content strategy. We talked about tools, and books, resources, conferences, and a whole lot more. Be sure to keep up with that and more by subscribing to the Drunken UX podcast in your favorite podcast app. Nathan Gitter kicks off this week with an article on building fluid interfaces, which was inspired by a talk on this subject at this year's Apple Worldwide Developer Conference. Fluid interfaces help extend user experiences that are designed to feel naturally reactive to user input. They interpret commands and reflect the user's objective in a way that comes across naturally rather than performing a request in a purely mechanical way. In a word, it's all about control. When we talk about this, we think a lot about what goes on not just with the interactions, but in between the interactions. How items move or change while the user is engaged with the component reflect how fluidly it's been built. For instance, a content panel that can open and close in response to the speed that you swiped it with, or the way a component moves into position after being clicked or dragged. Nathan dives into this subject with a total of eight great examples of UI components and how you can approach them with fluid concepts. His examples are somewhat specific to designing components for iOS apps, and while the code examples themselves might not be the most useful because of that, he supports the concepts by extending into the design theory that underpins the suggestion. By doing this, the ideas can be extended to whatever you're working in, like JavaScript and CSS. You can check out his blog post on Medium to learn more about fluid design and what it looks like in practice. Back in the days of the venerable 8088, programmers had a problem. Tiny RAM and limited floppy drives forced them to ensure that their code was lean and optimized. Computer resources were scarce, so they couldn't afford to write bloated software. As the years have progressed, software and websites have forgotten some of that lesson focusing more on functionality and less on efficiency. This is where Adi Osmani's article comes into play to sort out the cost of JavaScript. By and large, HTML and CSS are fairly cheap when it comes to delivering and parsing the payload. But line after line, our JavaScript gets bigger and creates a larger burden for the user's platform. Nowhere is this more apparent than on mobile devices. This article looks at a number of tactics you can use to improve the way you deliver JavaScript on the page. For instance, web apps can take advantage of code splitting. Or you can audit your JavaScript to cut complete libraries down to just a few functions that you need to access. Another good suggestion is to set yourself a data budget, where you establish a ceiling you don't go over when it comes to the size of the JavaScript you're loading. We've spent a lot of time over the years talking about how milliseconds matter, and how it can make the difference between getting a conversion or not. The argument over the cost of your JavaScript isn't about milliseconds though, it's about full-blown seconds before your page is usable. 
Just to give you some more context, Erica Sweeney wrote an article a few months ago that I'll leave a link to in the show notes that looked at how the USA Today cut their site down for GDPR compliance. The result was that they reduced a ton of JavaScript overhead and size, and they reduced the page load times by about 90%. GDPR may have been the motivator, but it's a great example of how large the impact can be from JavaScript interrupting your user experience. Stop by DrunkenUX.com and leave us a comment in the show notes to share your favorite JavaScript optimization techniques, and be sure to catch Addy's article over at Medium. WordPress 4.9.8 is here, and with it, the dreaded Test Gutenberg callout. In a surprise to pretty much no one, folks are not exactly jumping for joy. Over at WP Tavern, Sarah Gooding has collected some of those reactions for you to review. Gutenberg doesn't officially arrive until WordPress 5.0, but as of now, your installation will give you a chance to install the preview plugin and try it out. You can also pre-install the Classic Editor plugin as well, in case you plan to skip Gutenberg after it releases. Sarah notes that there's some interesting patterns in how feedback appears, at least anecdotally, to vary strongly by the medium that you're looking in. A lot of the comments are expressing a great deal of concern, though. We've talked about Gutenberg several times now between Drunken UX and Real-Time Overview. For my piece, I don't think it's ready, and I'm not sure I would have released the preview now in the state that it's in. That being said, I'm also not nearly as doom and gloom as many commenters seem to be about the forthcoming release. There's a reason this is still a preview, and that's because it's not done. Many of us that have been keeping up with its development are well aware of that, but a lot of the public at large didn't, and they're just now getting their first taste of this new and very different interface. Now I could go on at length about the strategy involved with Gutenberg, where it's fallen short and what could be improved, We could also look at the comments and discuss what they're getting wrong and why things aren't being done the way that they'd like it to be. But that's not a discussion for here and now, though. Run by WP Tavern to read Sarah's article on what the feedback currently looks like and go play with the plugin and decide for yourself. For what it's worth, in last week's real-time overview episode, we included an article with resources to help you disable the callout if you so chose. Afterwards, shoot us a message on Twitter or Facebook and let us know what you think of WordPress's new editing experience. Back in June, an episode of Planet Money tackled the subject of fake product reviews on Amazon. It's a subject that's been getting a lot of attention lately as more and more vendors use Amazon as their middleman and people try to get their products to the top of search results. It should come as no surprise that Amazon isn't necessarily motivated to do anything directly about this. Over at netinstructions.com, they took a look at some of these Amazon dark patterns. We've talked about dark UX many times on Real-Time Overview and with good cause. I think it's important to know how design can be used to meet certain ends, even if those ends don't serve the user. In this case, the author realized something was up when he wasn't allowed to leave a review for a product that he had bought. In this case, the issue he identified was that for a product with generally high reviews, his lower star review wasn't being allowed because it was only available to quote-unquote Amazon-verified purchasers. The catch? He bought it on Amazon. After more research, he found many reviews were clearly being generated by either bots or a review farm, and it raises the question, if he can easily detect this pattern, why can't Amazon? The obvious answer is that they have no reason to. 
Good reviews encourage people to buy things, and buying things puts money into their pockets, even after accounting for returns. The gamesmanship being played with this dark UX pattern is that while Amazon throws an error for his case, it doesn't offer any means of remediation, and the error is esoteric enough as to not be useful either. It's made to be intentionally unhelpful. So what's the lesson? Don't trust everything you see on Amazon, and be prepared to reach out to customer support in those cases. And lastly, this is one time you definitely shouldn't follow Amazon's lead when building out a platform. In the wild world of web work, one of the biggest challenges that has to be considered is how to go from a beautiful, purpose-driven design to functional, robust code. These skills don't necessarily share a common ancestor, and it can be the point where the most friction occurs in a project. Over at CloudApp, Chris Galello has offered up some advice for simple but impactful ways to bridge design and dev. He shares tips to make sure that you're taking time to involve designers and developers in each other's processes so that they have the time to hear how their counterparts are approaching and thinking about the problems that they need to solve. It also gives them a chance to voice concerns or challenges that might arise. Inviting them to your stand-ups and building iteration time into your project plan can help you avoid traps that eat up days or weeks of corrective work. There's also the angle of making sure that everybody is involved in usability tests so that they can see how layouts and functionality perform in the real world with users. Sometimes just relying on bug reports can obfuscate some of the nature of the issues that people run into. Seeing these problems in action can also facilitate collaborative brainstorming as well. He shares a couple more ideas in this article that you can read at the CloudApp blog, but don't hesitate to let us know what you've found to work well when it comes to getting design and development to work in sync. Thanks for clicking into Real-Time Overview this week, and as always, we hope you found one of these selections helpful for what you're doing. For the Drunken UX Podcast, I'm Michael Feenan. If you want links to any of the stories in today's episode, be sure to swing by our website at drunkenux.com. They'll all be linked in the show notes there. Stay tuned to your feeds for this coming Monday when Mike Rotowalski will be joining me for a chat on the latest episode of Build Process. Until next time, keep your personas close and your users closer. <laughs>